Hi guys and welcome. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, artist, memoir writer, bipolar psychiatric survivor, and your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast, the place that offers an alternative perspective on mental illness, highlighting creativity, non-conventional healing, and breaking on through to the other side. If you are ready for a new narrative on the mental realm that celebrates crazy and cool without penalty, then Not As Crazy As You Think is for you. Hello, this is Jen Gata Siciliano, your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast. Welcome to season five, two years in, five seasons, couple breaks in between. Just thrilled to still be putting out material that I hope serves somebody out there because what I have learned over the course of the time that I've been doing this is that this conversation has been wanting to be had for decades. And, you know, I was part of that group dying to find some kind of community that needed to speak about these things in a different way than was being presented as the vocabulary of choice in the medical model when we discuss these things. So I welcome you to the conversation. Today, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I just love um, what he says about the creatively maladjusted. It's always been something that I take with me. And in his book, which was a collection of sermons um, called Strength to Love, he writes in 1963, this hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. The saving of our world from pending doom will come, not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a nonconforming minority. Human salvation lies in the hands of the creative maladjusted. And I always take that with me because... I always felt that he supported people who were willing to follow their voices and commit to their purpose in life, whether it was outside the box or not. And sometimes it was obvious to see the benefits of that journey, but so many of us have kind of stumbled into that journey without maybe choosing it. It's chosen us. And I bring that up because I want to share uh, the next chapter of my book, chapter seven, when I come home from India, and how that leads to an experience that the modern medical establishment known as psychiatry would label psychotic. So from that point on, I knew that what my experience was, was an alternative type of experience that based on what vocabulary was being used in the hospital, made me realize that they didn't understand much about. But once I was drugged and forcibly, heavily medicated on antipsychotics in my 20s, I had no real way of communicating effectively. So my view, my visions, my experiences, they would just fall into really oblivion without my doctors really learning from me as a person with lived experience, not that they would even be open-minded enough to have cared. 
And, you know, I learned very quickly that I would be labeled a bad patient, a non-compliant, difficult patient, if I should choose to communicate about it in an alternative way anyway, if I could gather my words about it. This authority that was telling everyone in the world about people like me, telling my family things that in their narrative was a saving thing to my state of mind, but really it was extremely harmful because my parents were taught not to trust anything I said. And at the, by the same token, I was being trained to not trust my own mind. Basically, the conventional way of looking at these things reduces everything right down to the DSM's description of psychotic experiences within the framework of schizophrenia or other kind of psychotic-related mental illnesses, bipolar disorder with psychotic symptoms being one of them. And that was what I was labeled with after this experience coming back home from India. So one of the things I just recently came across was this user-led project to amplify the diversity and richness of experiences described as psychosis and get it out there. And, and to a great deal, get it out there to professionals that could potentially learn from this. This could be part of their um, knowledge base. If they heard from people with first-person experience, things might change. Who knows? Uh, right now, uh, the the people with lived experience have systematically been categorized as being unreliable interpreters of our own experience. And that has largely to do with how we view what this experience is. The authors of this project, uh, Shannon Pagan and Nev Jones, um, were also at one point labeled when they were young as having schizophrenic symptoms, which they felt did them very much harm. And this reduction, this is oversimplification and reductionist nature of boiling down the complexity of the human mind and its subtle interactions with these other unexplainable realms and just saying, well, these are the behaviors that we see. It's a lifelong mental disorder. You know, it's something wrong with their brain. I mean, interestingly enough, one of the people who had something to say about how this DSM is being misused is Nancy Andreasen, who I had mentioned before in a previous podcast. She's a leading schizophrenia researcher and a neuroscientist who had written the book, The Broken Brain, The Biological Revolution in Psychiatry in the 1980s, in 1983, exactly. And much of her research points to this biological understanding of mental illness or belief system in mental illness. And yet, interestingly, she has put a lot of work out there tying creativity to people who often exhibit these quote-unquote disorders. And she's come forward saying that the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was never intended to provide a comprehensive description of such a thing. It's more like a gatekeeping, which outlines minimal symptoms in a list so that professionals can make a diagnosis. But when you have so many things that don't have a deeper inquiry in place, and the American Psychiatric Association is supposed to be this authoritative medical model. 
to have a whole string of things that are missing from today's, I guess, comprehensive understanding of what these things can potentially be outside of just things in the brain that have gone haywire with, again, no real evidence has presented itself in this whole, you know, uh, many, many, many decades research on trying to prove it, that there is something, a biological pathology related to this, um, you know, it, maybe it's time to look elsewhere. So going back to these authors, Shannon Pagan and Nev Jones, um, they started this project called Psychosis Outside the Box. And what they have found is that clinicians can benefit from more depth and and understanding of this range of psychotic-related experiences from people who actually are the mental health service users, who have experienced various things that fall into the catch-all phrase of, say, hallucinations or delusions. Like, what are these things exactly? What is the language that we tend to use, all of us who are experiencing it? So I think it's so important because, again, my whole life, nobody has cared about the context of any of the psychosis or the nature of any of these kinds of subtle ways that we do interact with our environment in this psychotic state. And that's really where I want to go with the book, because it's so important to me to make sure that there is a dedicated analysis somewhere of my personal experience. Because if you were to look me up through the system, I look like a psycho case. Um, I wanted there to be an alternative uh, story that could really be looked at in uh, right alongside all of my papers on my on my the hundreds and hundreds probably now up th- up to thousands of printed documents on my hospital stays and all of the papers that have gone through the system under my psychiatrists so they have a story about me through their observations i have a story about me understanding deeper and deeper the subjective account of what I had gone through. And I think that if everyone heard other people's subjective accounts, you'd see that we all have a lot more in common than you think. Therefore, there must be some objectivity to it. If you want to catch up on those first six chapters, please go to the podcast description of this episode, episode one, season five, and I will have the links to those first six chapters, which will take you to the different podcasts separately. And they all have like a little preface because um, if you just listen to a chapter like outside of, you know, not knowing what came before or after it, it could just leave you hanging. So I'm trying to put it in context. I write a little something in the beginning of each uh, podcast that holds a chapter to kind of give you a preface of what is contained within. So certainly check that out. So going back to this outside-of-the-box compilation, 248 English language entries from around the world had entered this survey, and the authors gathered this information and really put out simple questions in this attempt to create this experiential knowledge base for anyone that wishes to, to view it. It really does give a, another resource for people who actually do care about thinking outside the box on this. 
It can be found online under rethinkpsychosis.weebly.com. And there's a few projects going on that talk about this experiential knowledge. And they focus on questions and things like visions, felt presences, and alterations of time and space, which is clearly some of the major experiences that I have had and I outline in the chapter that you'll be listening to. So there's this umbrella of schizophrenic symptoms, okay? And everything kind of falls underneath it, hallucinations, delusions. And, but a lot of us who have been labeled in one form or another with one of the psychotic disorders, we see a different differently. And certainly for me, I was thankful for these voices that suddenly penetrated my my mind because I couldn't have gotten home from India without them. So I knew them to be completely benign. And, and not only that, but they were extremely important and instrumental in guiding me back home to safety. They weren't these scary things. And yes, if you open your head chakra that wide to this vast array of influences that are on this, you know, ethereal layer of reality, anything can come through, right? So that's why we have to learn, you know, how to use these voices and how to stabilize if things should, should shift badly. So, you know, today, there's a lot of movement in this area. Um, you have the hearing voices movement, which is great. And that's taking place around the world. And people aren't so scared to um, pull from uh, influential either stories, literature, narratives, belief systems from the indigenous. You know, these spiritual traditions worldwide have, haven't described psychosis in the same way. And there's a long history of exclusion of these points of view in Western medical literature. There's no reference to it. And if there is a reference to it, it's always seeming to point that these are, you know, primitive ways of viewing the world. Now, Jonathan Keyes, a licensed professional counselor who has his own private practice, and he's a writer for Mad in America, had written an article in 2014 titled Traditional Healing and Psychosis Versus the Promises of Modern Science. And it's a good one because it really points to all of the different alternative ways that traditional societies have seen these complex narratives behind the explanatory models of psychosis in other cultures. So, you know, what is this thing that other cultures believe? Well, they believe that a lot of times this, these psychotic experiences happen as a, almost a form of possession of spiritual entities. And then people who have these experiences could then become a spiritual intermediary or a shaman of sorts to help their tribe. But again, in the West, these things are not put in the same category as normal, as real, as things that can be trusted, as things that can be verified. They are seen as hallucinations, delusions, thought distortions, and are just people who experience them in this realm, in this Western world, were just forcibly medicated and pretty much thrown away from society. Okay, so in these other cultures, and this is really truly from all over the world, from areas of India, Native America, um, you know, uh, Native American tribes, um, 
tribes in Africa, really worldwide, any indigenous area. Um, basically, <laughs> the rest of the world, guys, outside of the white man. I mean, <laughs> you know, let's get real. Like, we're talking anti-colonialism here, okay? I mean, this is what we're speaking about, right? That the rest of the world matters. I mean, I know it does because I've seen it. As if they don't, they're not real people. It's, this is what it comes down to. Um, so they believe in the spirits of their ancestors and calling upon them through ecstatic rituals. In other societies, this can be seen as a superstitious folk killing. But what it has shown is that a lot of these people who experience these things experience much better outcomes when it comes to handling psychosis. So maybe we are missing something in this Western view that we have. And we can learn from other kinds of care because whether or not you think it's real isn't the issue. It's how the people come out on the other side of these rituals. Do they improve? Are their lives improved? Is community-based care more valid, say, than, oh, we know exactly the answers through scientific reasoning? It just boils down to a belief system. They're still looking for biological answers, and they won't stop. They won't stop. They're going to continue looking. And to what end? So they can come up with more drugs? I mean, this is where they go with this. This idea about these folk ceremonies and healing rituals that provide this kind of reintegration into society, that's a real thing. And it also externalizes the psychosis into something that's outside of yourself. And there's not this intrinsic biological feature of you, of your DNA. And after this reintegration, the ceremony would often include those in the community so that everyone can hold space in some way to support this distress, the settling of distress in the individual. In modern medicine, bottom line, they don't believe in that. They don't believe in spirituality. They don't believe in anything outside of materialism. And this is something that has to be understood. We can talk about how things can be better, how things can show promise. There's different ways to interpret. But when the overriding medical model doesn't believe in any other things that are outside of what can be seen and touched through materialistic interpretations, then it doesn't really matter because they're the ones in charge. They don't believe that there's this lacy veil that separates one side from the other, from the living and the dead. They don't believe in anything like a spiritual concept. So I guess my main message with this podcast today is it really doesn't matter what medicine believes. In the end, it is a belief system. They start with certain assumptions and they go down a certain line of reasoning to arrive at their conclusions. But their thinking is so uh, anti-evidence because they're denying the evidence that is right in front of them, which is the story of the narrative. So I offer to you today my personal narrative of what happened to me when I came home from India. Chapter 7, Back in New York. I was finally heading home. But I was, oh, so tired. 
It had been such a failure of a trip in an exponential way. My despondency set in deeper and deeper. Really, miss, are you okay? She looked especially worried for me. After Mahandir had left my side, it all returned. For 12 hours, I was visiting the Blaine's bathroom on a constant basis, the flight attendant guiding me to and fro. Although the floods were on hold for the last half hour or so, the steady, unbearable abdominal pain would not relent. She had given me blankets and wrapped me gingerly in them, for I had been too weak to do it myself. I lied there, wrapped like a mummy, barely able to respond as if I was in and out of a coma, and every so often she and the staff would hover over me and say things to each other like, Are you sure she's going to be okay? What happened to her? Maybe she ingested something poisonous. And they continued to take turns in attending to my every need, patting my head with a cool, damp cloth, offering a sip of water every few minutes, holding a raised straw to my mouth. Paralyzed from the physical fatigue, I was oh so tired. I thought of Mahandir's card I had a chance to peek at right after boarding. It read, To my love friend, love Mahandir Singh. I would never forget my love friend. Good people still lived and breathed in this wretched world, and the mercy and kindness of Mahandir's overflowing compassion overwhelmed me. And then, in that moment, I knew that one chapter of my life had slammed shut for good, and that the one to come was completely unknown to me. Still unable to fall asleep, I cried quietly through many long hours, I thought about those harrowing moments in the hotel room during which I heard God's whisper, a whisper so real that everything else from here on could only be trivial in comparison. I was oh so tired. I didn't know how much longer I could endure this world. Relinquishing my body seemed so inviting. I was willing and oh so tired. And then, so suddenly, my body fell limp and I took a deep breath and released liberally, and the exhale did not revert into an inhale. All at once, I felt weightless and airy as a bright, warm, and loving energy enveloped me. This was not a dream. It was real. Friendly voices cheered me on. You're almost home. You can do it. We're waiting for you. The voices were so familiar, like those of old friends forgotten on the front lines of a battle at war. And as I gravitated toward them, the troughs of my life seemed like old nightmares, a little surreal and painful still, but also rapidly fading in memory. You did it! You made it home! My friends shouted with approval and roared in joy, in melodic, angelic voices that sounded eternal and unconditionally loving. Next, my entire crazy experience in India began to replay before me, scene by scene, like an adventure movie. Valiantly, I confronted and overcame each rising obstacle, and I really did look like Indiana Jones with that damn safari hat on top of my head. The hero myth unfolded before me on a virtual movie screen in full glory for all the angels in heaven to witness, and I played the part of the action hero rather well. My angel friends guffawed and howled at my strength and bravery in the face of danger. Go, Jen, go! What a trooper you were! You made it! 
All at once, I understood how my experience in the earth realm was indeed temporary and transient. Is this it? Am I finally coming home? A cloak of darkness and heaviness was lifted from me, and I fully understood my purpose, origin, and next destination. This energy of love was family. We were all family up here, connected by the intelligent and gorgeous web of the universe, yet tenderly each held special in the loving hands of the Creator. The separation between that heavenly realm and us on Earth was but a transparent, lacy veil. We eventually did move on into another life, waking up into a different timeline and place with new journeys and old friends renewed and sacred. The mortal earth life was only one plane of existence, and an entire other dimension existed, perhaps more than just one other, perhaps a multitude. It was all so simple. We did go home in the end, after all. Compassion and thankfulness washed over me. I made it. I was finally home. But then, no, it isn't your time. Your soul's calling has not yet been realized. Remember your mother, how she did not want you to go to India? The image of my mother, stricken with grief, sent flashes of guilt through my ethereal body. Shamefully, I realized that the fear she had for me, something I mocked at the time, was a perspective that was justified in the end. How could she live if I died here on this airplane? I saw now that if I did not return home, she might break off mentally never to return. To let go of heaven and save my mother's sanity seemed like the only dignified thing to do to redeem myself fully so that I might earn eternity in God's eyes. Yes, I responded. I couldn't let her lose faith in life that way. I will return. Go and finish what you started. One day things will make sense for you. Maybe not right away but soon enough. And all in a moment, the blissfully gentle kindness tenderly let me go, and I descended back into our dense matrix of ignorance and suffering to sludge through the muck of mundane, uninspired living. I took on the burden and heartfelt prayer, but without much courage. I hoped I could retain some of the insight. Then, in a jerky thump, my body-mind plummeted back into its heavy, crude vessel. I opened my eyes, feeling completely alert and rather well. Where had I just gone? It was blissful and divine. Suddenly, I felt younger and innocent. Did I have a near-death experience? I tried to remember what had happened, but my only impression was that I went to a place I knew as home. And now, I returned to continue something— I couldn't recall what, and life felt very different than what I remembered it to be. Just then, the flight attendant came up to me and said, Oh boy, you look much better now. How are you feeling? I smiled at my caretaker and comfortably stretched. Astonishingly, I had no more pain, no more bubbling urges to go to the bathroom. Finally, after days of torment, the pain had miraculously subsided. The swelling in my stomach had gone down and my perpetual cramps had vanished. I sat for a few minutes in shock, but then I was distracted by my sudden hearty appetite as it returned with gusto. Do you want to try to eat something now? The attendant asked. Some crackers, some milk? I told her my choice. Chicken cordon bleu. 
She looked stunned. I was ready to indulge again, like a greedy and a hungry American. I devoured the food, lapping it up like a puppy. We finally landed in JFK Airport, and surprisingly, I didn't feel the urge to fall to my knees and kiss New York home turf. As I walked toward the baggage claim, a creeping revulsion crawled up my throat. A looming spiritual danger was perched, ready for attack, and I noticed, maybe for the first time in my life, the blatant deceit and lies around me. The commercial advertising surrounding my space threw me into inner rage. Its depth of twistedness was evil to me. If Satan really was our spiritual enemy, it was here where he manifested his cruel deception through the seduction of materialism in consumer marketing, encouraging lusty avarice and selfishness on mass scales. My thoughts continued to race as I processed the mental ills around me. A billboard over there. The deep cleanser and moisturizer you never again can live without. How preposterous. People were living all over the world with nothing. They needed everything. And yet a deep cleanser would be such an insultingly and useless thing to offer someone who was starving that it would appear insane. One huge sign after another. You long for it. You desire it. You need it. Oh, really? People in countries of poverty desire food, not a new coach purse. Where was America heading? Were these the Roman bread and circuses of today? Had we mimicked in the erection of a modern and advanced civilization the ways of a fallen people who ultimately destroy themselves by their disproportionately selfish desires and thirsts for more and more entertainment, pleasure, and material possessions ad infinitum? Had we learned nothing from the Romans? My mind continued to raise questions with no answers. I managed to get myself back to my apartment in Queens to unload my luggage and then jogged with firm purpose to catch a subway to a hospital to get checked out. I didn't trust the one in Astoria, but I knew St. Vincent's Hospital in Greenwich Village had good facilities, so I made my way downtown. And then suddenly, after entering the subway car, it was all completely clear to me that I was waking up from a dream. Symbols and sayings surrounded me everywhere with profound meaning, seemingly in a way only I could understand, as if God had wanted me to be directed by them. A small picture on someone's tote bag of ruby red slippers like Dorothy's caught my eye. Hang in there, a college ad stated on the above head banner of the car. It's almost over, a scribble on the side of the subway seat reminded me. The words on a travel brochure flyer trampled on by hundreds of people in that subway car that day seemed placed just so for my eyes to fall upon. This was all too perfect to be real. It was obvious that this life, with all its tragedies and failures, with all its victories and joys, was just a dream. How else could I have possibly arrived home from India? When I finally re-entered the avenues above the underworld tunnels, I chose my steps with careful intention, guided by the clarity of pitch and bells and tones, something I had never heard prior in the noisy chaos of Manhattan. All other disharmonious street noise and sensory input faded into the background. I trusted the course, for following these clues in India had led me home to safety. Roscoe was the first person that came to mind. He'd understand. I wanted to pour out my heart and tell him everything I had been through and lean on his strong posture. So I followed my inner voice once more. And there it was, the recurring sign that kept leading me closer. Astoria Moving Company. 
I was living in Astoria, Queens, and I was on the move. How magical. I followed the signs. They were posted around every corner downtown, and they finally emptied me into Spring Street, like a river to its mouth at the Gulf, right to the bar, the Emerald Pub. Of course, here was my Emerald City, and like Dorothy trying to get home, I found it. I was sure to find some people here whom I knew and trusted, my people. I entered the bar, and the place was empty. To the bartender, I asked, is Roscoe here yet? Confused, he stared at me and then said, who? Who are you looking for? Oh, shit. I couldn't trust this guy, either. I backed up slowly and ran to the payphone. Disoriented, I couldn't think clearly enough about who to call or what to say. What was going on? Was I still being led, or was I just wandering around in confusion? I decided to avoid the phone, too. As I stumbled out of the bar, my fanny pack's contents spilled onto the floor, but I kept moving. In a fight-or-flight adrenaline mode, I jogged briskly into the heart of Greenwich Village as my bewildering surroundings began to magnify and fear continued to set in. A threatening trepidation overwhelms me, similar to what I felt on my last legs in India, except it wasn't a threat of physical survival, but rather emotional and mental. The craze of New York was violent to my psyche with its foul smells and hard people, like those aggressive and boisterous Indian merchants who were handling and pushing me around every corner at the New Delhi Bazaar. I had just come out of the horrors of battle, and I needed to calm my mind. But it continued to race as it did in India, which was then my saving grace because I was able to calculate with extreme clarity of mind my urgent situation so that I could get myself home as quickly as possible. When I finally reached St. Vincent's Hospital, I looked first for a payphone to call my family because I knew they'd be worried sick. My father answered, Where the hell are you? He yelled. I'm in the city, got home a little while ago, and now I'm in the hospital. What's going on? Why did you leave your wallet in a bar? We got a phone call. And why aren't you still in India? It had only been five days. I had planned to stay in India for two weeks. My internal time clock was completely shot. Time was taking on a new quality for me, much more liquidy and less measured. Daddy, I'll explain everything later. I'm checking in. You're not checking in over there, he said firmly. Wait until I pick you up and you can go to the hospital at home in New Rochelle. When he arrived 40 minutes later, I saw that my cousin Tommy accompanied him, which meant the family at large determined that a crisis was at hand. After hurrying over to me with sick looks of worry, they stood shocked by my appearance. In a measly five days of travel, I had clearly lost a lot of weight. I was filthy with visible signs of distress plastered all over my face, for it had now been over 48 hours without a full night's shut-eye. That burst of energy that had earlier fueled my manic wanderings around the city had flown out of my being, and the initial weakness of my physical illness had set back into my bones. In a tight clutch, I threw my arms around the shoulders of Tommy and my father, for I wanted to secure close to my being that loving contact through my bloodline, the foundation for real saving love. They guided me carefully into the car, and when we were well down the West Side Highway, my father and Tommy looked solemn and glanced at each other quizzically. Then my father finally asked with fearful suspicion, So what the hell happened? 
I gave him the super short version, affecting a nonchalant tone. I don't know. I think Mrs. Nayar got mad at me. So I left the house, and then I got sick. Then I decided to come right home. They were both silent. I didn't want to reveal anything else unless they asked. To avoid incriminating myself, I suppose, but they never did. I began to fear that admitting I had a mystical experience was enough to get me completely ostracized from my family, so I kept my mouth tightly shut about it. My family knew something bad had happened to me, though, and we were all afraid to talk about it. When I finally arrived at the front steps of my family's house in Rochelle, it no longer felt like home, much less home sweet home. And when I walked through the door, my mother whirled into a frenzy, reminiscent to Mrs. Nayar. What did you do over there? I spoke to Summit's mother, and she was ranting and raving, saying that you disrupted the whole house. Now I knew for sure that Brahmin bitch was crazy. She threw me out into the streets of India, and because she felt guilty and needed exoneration in case something bad happened to me, she now brought her aggressive toxicity to my mother overseas. I was hurled into a defense of my innocence in my own home and had nowhere to turn for sympathy. Now, in a cruel twist of irony, I found myself soothing my mom's woes instead. It's okay, Ma. It's okay, I told her repeatedly. She continued, that's one thing I never wanted you to be was an imposition. She paced back and forth, throwing her hands in the air and upset. Why would she kick you out if you didn't do anything wrong? I knew this was a terrible idea. Was it worth it after all this? I would have done anything to prevent my mother from feeling guilty for allowing me to go on this stupid failure of a trip. But she was more worried about how I looked in the eyes of some pompous, asinine family 3,000 miles across the planet, which she would never in this lifetime ever meet, than how I appeared before her. A stinking mess, obviously strained and stressed beyond recognition, and definitely not the same person I was before I left. Indeed, she had no notion of the suffering I had endured. The truth was that I behaved in the Nayar's home as my mother would have wanted me to. I tiptoed around that house like I was avoiding ant hills in a jungle, trying to step as carefully as a soldier in a minefield, not to disturb even a mouse in that house for fear of being considered an imposition. How much my mother's tapes had played in my head on that trip, and here I was still not measuring up to what was asked of me. She continued her rant a little more, and I absorbed only half the customary I told you so speech when I finally cut her off. Really, Mom, it's no big deal. I'm home, right? Alive? I went upstairs to my childhood bedroom to contemplate this situation. I didn't know what to think. Less than a week had gone by, and my few days in India were the longest of my existence, during which I suffered, died, and rose from the dead. And back home, everything continued as if nothing ever happened. I had truly time-traveled. I had seen time unwind itself thousands of years back to the ancient past into the scourges of brutal enslavement of the decrepit caste system, and then to the brilliance of the Taj Mahal of a bygone Mughal empire, once so prosperous and opulent, and now nothing but a shadow of yesterday. 
I got a truly close look at what progress looks like over an incredibly long period of time, witnessing the unpreventable rise of Western industrialization on those New Delhi streets, the result of which delivered far more degradation than prosperity to India's people. I might have successfully ignored the wretchedness if I had not walked in the meekest loincloth among the lowliest homo sapiens alive on planet Earth, the Indian untouchables. Nobody cares about any one of them. They are people, not animals, and the colonialists couldn't see that. So now that I was back, I knew for sure that there's no such thing as time. Because coinciding in time alongside my family, who is sitting in New York spending the same few days watching TV and eating Chinese food, was my five-day journey that felt like a lifetime, during which I wrestled with God in redemption and fought the battle of my life to stay alive. Most of all, I had seen death and light on the other side. The timelines were enormously irreconcilable. Had I just entered a Star Trek alternate universe? Author Herman Hess, the perpetually melancholic artist who was on a continual search for something that made sense of this world while so frequently let down by the limitations of the human condition, wrote in Journey to the East, He who travels far will often see things far removed from what he believed was truth. When he talks about it in the fields at home, he is often accused of lying. For the obdurate people will not believe what they do not see and distinctly feel. Inexperience, I believe, will give little credence to my song. I realized I was utterly alone in my experience, and this aloneness would be forever. Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl, an author of Man's Search for Meaning, told the story of his return home from Auschwitz and the disconnection from others he experienced. As he spoke to his family and friends about his time in the concentration camp, many just stared at him with detached incredulity. The intensity with which he spoke, the absolute enormity of what he spoke about, and the pressured speech with which he conveyed the story was almost too much for them to bear. Since no one could really commiserate with his story, it made the impression of a legend or myth. And such was my fate. Evening came soon enough, and I tried to get some sleep, but the memories of India turned over and over in my mind. The betrayal of Summit, the twisted grimace on his mother's face when she threw me out of her house in disgust, and the vile filth and poverty overflowing onto the streets were still too alive in my mind and now tattooed on my brain. I attempted to seek the same comfort I had found in the television at the Grand Western Regional Hotel Suite in India. Spending the remainder of my first night back home in America fixated on the tube surfing channels. One image on the set after another suggested injustice or deception of some kind. Advertisements tried to convince viewers what they wanted or needed. I now knew people needed very little to survive or even live a decent and good life. Peculiar images intending to educate and entertain young viewers jumped off the screen. Or were they only stimulating them into an addictive daze? Evangelical Christians praised Lord Jesus, thanking God for exclusively saving them from hell, where all non-believers were destined to reside. But as many already suffered hell on earth, why should they be even further punished? 
With my newly attained understanding of relativity, I could no longer digest this reality. Why hadn't I seen it before? I had been so unaware, so desensitized, so blinded to the truth. What had happened to the world since I was gone? Or what had happened to me? I tried to remember. All night long, I watched that damn TV set, and it felt as though I was receiving messages through it. And then I caught it. A planted glitch. A mistake in the code on cable television being aired hours after midnight. It was a war documentary showing Nazi soldiers marching in unison with Hitler orating feverishly. But there were no English subtitles translating his speeches, and it went on for several minutes. In that digital matrix, such heinous, malicious code was spreading like wildfire because whoever was watching it and understanding it was getting all fired up. Why am I seeing this? Because you were chosen to expose it through proving it with your own life. What am I supposed to prove? Everything. Why? Because no one will be convinced that you are not crazy because they will say you are, and that's that. It's a virus. Yes, it's the dead white man virus. Will you do it? It was then I knew my future had been determined. I had to do it. Whatever it was I needed to do, I agreed to do it because the world was surreptitiously being led into oblivion if these guys currently running the world remained in charge. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, she's in, Captain. She's agreed to do it. She's agreed to prove everything so she can prove them wrong, said Lieutenant Dan. It was this internal auditory guidance that I came to know as my angel squad. Existing outside of our dimension, their main goal was to assist in human evolution through love and consciousness. The angels employ the language you give them. So in my inner world, my guides had the same hierarchical command structure as Star Trek, an enterprise that came to be a lifelong passion of mine. Mr. Spock was head of command at the helm with a practical, trustworthy voice of impeccable judgment. Of course, in my imagination, the logical Vulcan was Leonard Nimoy, who had graduated to the captain's chair. Number one looked like Will Sampson, the six foot seven inch actor who played the silent Indian in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And with his long hair braided with hanging feathers, he was a proud descendant of the American Indian Sioux tribe. And Lieutenant Dan was a nerdy Kevin Hart lookalike black American who descended from the tribe of Detroit. This space flight crew of nerdy saviors were from the same family of angels who guided me home from India. The morning light poetically brought with it Easter Sunday, but I did not feel resurrected. I felt deader than ever. It was 5 a.m. when I went to look at the newspaper on the table to provide me some grounding to objective reality. But when I skimmed the pages, the articles seemed to appear and disappear, as if I were receiving messages of news in the future, the far future. Was this today's news? Or indeed tomorrow's? What was everybody to wake up to today? To me, it appeared as though the world was coming to an end. Something terrible was going to occur, and it was clear I needed to step up for all mankind and save the world from its impending and unavoidable demise. I tried to gather my wits, avoiding my concerned-looking parents for the remainder of the day. Aunt Angie held the holiday dinner as usual, and I was happy to get away from that dreadful TV at my parents' house. 
Dinner was the traditional, a large plate of pasta smothered in red gravy, Italian bread, stuffed peppers, meatballs, sausage, pork, and antipasto. A feast that would feed a whole slum in New Delhi was sitting luxuriously on my aunt's kitchen table, waiting to be gorged by a gathering of 12 hungry Italians, desiring nothing less than to pig their asses out on this holiday, to the point of wanting to throw up so that they could later sit back, take a nap, and undo their belt button and zipper. I did not feel the urge to dive into the gluttony this year. Since only a couple days prior, I had thrown my brains up one too many times. Cousin Tommy watched me pensively from across the table as Aunt Angie begged me to eat. Manja, manja, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you eating? Manja! But when I refused, she demanded, at the very least, eat a cookie. I liked the sound of that. I took the Oreo and chewed it slowly. I could get this sweet stuff down just fine, and I savored the chocolate wafer and creamy filling. But that red gravy and smell of cooked tomatoes made me want to vomit. And so I retreated to the living room, smuggling another cookie, eager to be alone. I simply could not fathom how everything in my life back home had just continued as before, as though nothing had happened. How unfortunate was I to have been reinserted into this matrix? With the despair I was beginning to feel, it would have been best if I died on that plane home from India. Aunt Angie's tiny living room was neatly and modestly decorated with old crocheted doilies and porcelain tchotchkes. Her lumpy sofa was patterned and dated in a mustard velvet textured 1960s upholstery that was covered with a brown and orange Afghan blanket. It was a humble abode, part of the three-family unit that had housed many of our relatives throughout the years. Cousin Tommy entered, and he took a seat next to me. He looked at me sympathetically, then put his arm around me. Tommy was originally from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, a rabble-rousing Italian neighborhood known for its obsession with the Yankees and instigating trash talk. When he married Cousin Carol, I was just 10 years old. With his street-smart edge, he had the best sense of humor in the family and teased everyone mercilessly, but also lovingly. He sat with me quietly for some time and then said, I know what it must have been like over there. You saw things that you probably didn't want to see. I was struck by how kind a gentle truth is when spoken aloud. I saw some bad things over there, I confessed. He said, I went to Vietnam, I know which moved me deeply. What I experienced was psychologically akin to a battle in war. What hellish recollections returning soldiers from war had to live with. Receiving so little understanding from their friends and family back home must surely harden and weaken many of them. At the very least, the post-traumatic hell is shared amongst them. My gratitude for my cousin's thoughtful gesture overcame me. The warmth of true compassion and empathy directed my way was so comforting, if only for a moment on Easter Sunday. I remained awake for another day, totaling four days in a row with no rest in the unconscious world, and I was still in terror that I was being eaten alive by amoebic dysentery. Then things shifted badly. I was uncomfortably aware that dreamlike themes were pervasive in my communication with others. 
In a place no one else could go, I was alternating between this world and some other one, opening doorways in my mind and stepping through them. I started to enter a deep dreamlike trance and had visions of Aryan wind-up dolls with a human facade that interbred with the seeds of our society. Set to go off at a specific command phrase, they were the walking, ticking time bombs, or the super soldier race, that the Nazis, under a U.S. government secret operation, brought into the country and worked on in the 1940s and never stopped fine-tuning. My angel squad was in reach. They will ultimately destroy all of humanity unless they can be stopped, Captain Spock urged. They're roaming undercover throughout the country, and their cloned features can fool anyone into thinking they are human. We don't know the command phrase to set them off. I hope you realize the urgency of this operation, Jen. We need you to find the command phrase. Will you do it? Uh, do I have a choice? You always have a choice. But it's only the right choice that puts you on the road to fulfilling your destiny. Okay, if I'm like a superhero saving the world, I'll do it. Chief number one, initiate download, ordered Captain Spock. Download complete, sir. Here it is. First point, crazy is what crazy does. Point in between. Everything else, ABC, one, two, three. Last point. So fuck you, because I'm not the one who's crazy. I'm very smart. With my frequent mention of the Nazis, my parents were taking sharp notice. They hurried around with great purpose that morning, acting as if they had made a very important decision. Then they brought me to a hospital for some evaluations. But when I tried desperately to plead with the staff to listen to my story, they ignored me cruelly. And rather quickly and scarily, I soon realized that the people surrounding me were not in on it. And then when I tried to get up from the hospital bed, they held me down firmly. But now I saw so plainly, these were not the people I was to shield from the horror of my apocalyptic vision, for these over-analytical Vulcan types were destined to suffer enormously for their choice of logic over emotion, for reason over spirit. Then one of the robot doctors turned to my parents and told them I needed something other than this place. Where were they to bring me? Didn't they understand that a grand conspiracy was at hand to kill all artistic people and destroy the genetic composition of all dissident and rebellious world citizens? But they disregarded my cries and continued to talk to my parents, attempting to brainwash them. They would see. It was inevitable that my destiny be fulfilled. Even if I had to die like a martyr, they would then understand how I was somebody sent to help save this insane world. They ushered me to an ambulance to go someplace new. Did they say the mental ward? My mother stayed alongside me in the vehicle and said, It's going to be okay there. The hospital is Catholic. She appeared dreadfully worried, but held herself together in strong stature. I felt consoled by her presence as she held my hand the whole way, and her touch healed me. After visiting heaven, I did the right thing in returning to this underworld to see her again. I was happy to still be alive and in her life. Lieutenant Dan reported, Looks like Jen will get caught on the glitch we sent into the code and then latch hooked into a mental time warp for 150 years. She won't see anything else for 20 of her Earth gravity years except the backwards thinking of the late 1800s. 
explained Captain Spock. She was chosen because she's the only one on Earth who time-traveled back into colonial Great Britain. On the plane ride home from India, Jen was given a second chance at living. But in having seen perfect relativity in that heavenly dimension, her soul instantly became ancient. As a result, upon her re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, her new point of gravity became grotesquely dense, so that everything around her appeared ludicrous. She saw too much, and quite literally, her mind went bipolar all in an instant, in their time. End of chapter 7. Thanks for listening to Not As Crazy As You Think, and don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And remember, mental health is attainable for anyone, especially those labeled with mental illness. Until next time, peace out.